If God is a potato, then we are all his spuds. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to uh, another episode of Terra Podnita. This is episode 122, we're covering Freddy vs. Jason. It's a fan favorite, it's a horror favorite, it's just a favorite. Honestly, it's just a, it's just a movie that deserves recognition for what it's set out to do, if nothing else. But before we get into this week's main event, we've got a few things on the band schedule. One, first thing to address is it's just me and Sam today. Yep. Uh, there's there's going to be no Alex for, for this week. She's got a lot on her plate this week. Um, well wishes and good vibes her way. Hopefully everything's all right. But uh, her her hubby is is getting pretty sick. So she's there. We haven't anything confirmed. Nothing, nothing happening as of yet. But she is getting him tested and just she needs some time away to be able to focus on her her family and her life. So, yeah, everybody just send her good vibes and well wishes. And uh, I know we're doing the same. Um, the second thing to address, we've got contest winners. Yay! We had 16 total entries in all. Oh, wow, that's not bad. Yeah, which, which I, you, I gotta say, it's better, better response than I thought. All, pretty much everybody who did respond, mm-hmm. uh, aside from a few who literally just took the contest literally and just sent me in a blank <laughs> email with a subject contest. line of holding contest and, <laughs> and nothing else that's all they had to do that's it that's true that's true uh the people that did write inside the email uh gave us some really good feedback seemed to really enjoy what we were doing so far um but we have two winners picked out of the total amount of entries one Somebody who interacts with us very regularly on Facebook, a uh, friend of the cast, Tim Lester. Thanks for entering. You won. And then our next guy. Now, I'm really awful with names. I'm hoping I don't butcher this guy's last names. I believe do, it's do you Emil. Need to text this to me? I believe it's Emil Chiru. C-H-I-R-U. I think it's Chiru. Um, it might be like Chiru. Or, or like. Chiru. Yeah, Maybe. I don't know. I, don't I probably know. would have gone with Chiru. But Emil, you are our other contest winner. Uh, we are going to get these mailed out first thing on Monday. They got to go to Tennessee first for our drummer to 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 sign them, and then they're coming your way. So uh, I've already I sent still out to sign them too. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. So uh, I'll probably drop them off to you by the yeah. end of the day today, and then uh, you can send them out over to Mike. But they've got to make their way over to Tennessee first, and then they're heading out to everybody who participated in one. Um, we really appreciate the feedback. We really appreciate everybody that that entered into the contest. It was a lot of fun to run it, and we're glad to see that there's so much uh, cross-interest between podcast listeners and people who want to listen to, I guess, our band stuff. Um, shameless cross-promotion successful, I guess. I like it. <laughs> I'm here for it. Sam, your beard's slowly but surely coming back. You look less is, like man. a baby. I, yeah, it's it's not so bad. Um, the one thing I did notice, though, is as it was, I guess, maybe a week ago before it got back to this length, at least, 
Um, there's so much more gray than I had actually noticed when it was longer, because as it, when it's longer, a lot of the parts that aren't still gray cover up the parts that are. So when this was, like, super short, it looked like I just had random patches yeah, because it true. was so light. It does look um, a lot more, I don't know, just salt and peppery now. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> leading, leaning hard into my old man status. Yes, yes. I think as we all are, uh, every time I bend over to pick up my baby and my back winces, it it uh, reminds me that I am not a, a ripe 20-something anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I I'm have, pretty sure we've all aged like six years in the last month. Yeah, I'd be like that that tomato that's like sitting in the back of your vegetable drawer, just like untouched, but still like still good quality, you know, juicy, but like it's losing its firmness. It's getting some bruises. You might <laughs> want to use it in like the next couple of days type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty much an apt description of my life. Speaking of, of veggies and stuff, Sam, you're trying your hand at a garden this year. Yeah. Um, I guess I've been kind of kicking it around for a while ever since you started yours, what seems like forever ago. Um, as, yeah. As, as you've taken to, what is it, Instagram to share all of your gardening tips and tricks. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which I have not watched because I don't know how to use Instagram. Um, I was, I was I barely know thinking how to use of, Instagram. I was thinking of doing like a raised garden bed, and apparently my neighbors just built two of them. Um, but I figured I'd rather start small. Uh, and just see if I can at least get shit to grow in the first place. So yeah. picked up a handful of different sized pots, uh, picked up a, a tomato plant, uh, some pepper seeds, some kale seeds, uh, some onions, uh, various herbs. I don't remember which herbs my wife bought. Um, we've grown those before mm-hmm. um, and did well with those until we just kind of forgot about them. I will say, um, so wait, are you growing your tomatoes from I'm sorry, were they plants or were those seeds as well? Uh, the tomatoes are plants. Okay. Wait another week before taking those out of your house. Okay. Because we're supposed to get one more frost, and tomato plants are super susceptible to yeah. frost. Yeah. Um, which I think, I think it's supposed to happen on Wednesday, but then after that, the weather seems to be, like, evening out. So it's, yeah. a, it's still going to be chilly at night, but... Well, we got to start pretty freezing. much everything else inside anyway. With the the biggest issue is we just have to find a place to put it where the cats can't get to it. Yeah, that's the biggest bitch. Um, and it's it's something that I wrestle with every year when I'm trying to start doing my sprouts. And I actually ended up coughing up the money for like these two seed trays that are completely covered and have these little like uh, notches that you can turn on the top uh, to allow either the moisture to remain trapped, which is a good thing for, for when they're first starting to sprout and, Mm -hmm. uh, then being able to open them up. So they allow for the air to start circulating They come with these little heating pads that you put underneath. Now this whole fucking setup, I'm pretty positive is for fucking weed growers. (laughs) (laughs) Cause it's like everything on Amazon was just like hydroponic, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay. But it, it's it's the same concept. It keeps your plants Dude, nice and toasty, and they're ready to go. I maintain that weed growers are to the like farming industry as to what like racing is to the passenger vehicle industry. Like everything happens there first and just trickles out. 
<laughs> it's like what they say with technology. The the two things on the forefront of technology are video games and porn. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing for weed growers and, and like, you know, farming in general, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but so. that's exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your progress and seeing how... If I guarantee you're going to run into some headaches here and there, but don't let it. No, I'm sure you. I will. Like if, I've already, I, I was going through everything this morning and already realized that like to do the seeds, I should have picked up some little like seedling things, um, which I didn't. I can I didn't point you about that. I can point you to the ones that I use that I bought off Amazon. Like I said, yeah. they're they're not inexpensive, but they're not terribly pricey either. Yeah. Um, for the whole setup, I think it was like. 120 bucks for two trays and each one okay. will hold like depending on what you plant them in i tend to use bigger pots because i let them get seriously sprouted before i plant them in the ground yeah uh but each one of those held a pot that was probably like i don't know three by three or something like that uh it held i want to say like 12 of them in each one so 24 total plants out of that. But if you're using smaller things, you can obviously get a lot more yielding from one. Yeah. And I, I think that's going to be the big difference between what you're doing and what I'm doing is all your stuff goes straight into the ground and mine's just going to stay in pots. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see how it goes. It, it, part of it was like, this is something I've just kind of wanted to try. And then the other part of it was like, what the hell else am I doing? So, yeah, you know, right. I'm like that's the, that's the other big thing. I feel like my garden this year is going to be much more successful than it has been in past years, just because I literally have nothing else to do until June tenth. Yeah, aside from you know work, but honestly, yeah. who's really doing that these days? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I work every day. Thank you for my job. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh Sam, we got a list. We do have a list of stuff to talk about on the hard hard lines this week. You ready to jump in? Let's do it. Headlines. All right, kicking things off, we've got uh, new movie information. Um, horror movie sweetheart Samara Weaving is starring in a Lionsgate thriller called Last Moment of Clarity. Uh, it's being described as a twisty Hitchcockian thriller. Samara Weaving, uh, star of, of The Babysitter, which was a pretty big camp hit, I guess, for Netflix. A lot of people yeah. seem to seem to be talking about it when it came out. And then, uh, obviously, the extremely successful Ready or Not will be featured alongside Brian Cox, who starred in uh, Autopsy of Jane Doe. And Udo Kier. It's <laughs> an interesting collection there. It is. It really is. Uh, the film is being released direct to DVD and VOD on May 19th. The synopsis is as follows. After his girlfriend, Georgia, uh, who who is played by, or who Weaving is in this movie, um, is murdered by European monsters, or mobsters, not monsters, uh, Sam, played by Zach Avery, flees to Paris to hide out. Years later, he sees a woman in Hollywood film who he's certain is georgia in la to investigate he encounters an enigmatic uh carly chaykin who plays cat uh who who i guess impulsively decides to help him on his quest to figure out whether or not this woman is actually georgia or not i love how this is like synopsis is just as convoluted as the concept of the movie. Oh yeah, for sure. As I mean, a, if it's a twisted cocky, it's, it's got it. Yeah, like, it's got to be. It makes no sense. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we'll see what happens with it. Um, I love pretty much everything Samara Weaving's in, so I'm I'm yeah. keen on checking this one out. Um, also, a big fan of Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty fun. Um, 
Next up, Universal is uh, turning Crave into a movie. Um, Tracy Wolf, she wrote a vampire novel called Crave that literally just came out. <laughs> like, like this movie or this book hasn't even like had a t- what, chance like, to become like a viral sensation or anything yet. Uh, it came out on like the seventh, I think. Yeah, Tuesday. Um, <laughs> this past Tuesday. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and it's already being brought to the big screen, courtesy of Universal. Um, the young adult vampire novel follows the story of a woman who finds herself at the center of a conflict between many warring factions when she falls for a vampire prince. All told, with a decidedly fe- feminist perspective. Okay, so this is just more Twilight. Probably. Which made a shitload that... of money. So I understand why studios are clamoring to, to grab this one up already. Yeah. Uh, the, another part of the synopsis, um, I'm not really going to get into it, but I'm going to pick out the person's name. Uh, Jackson Vega is apparently a vampire in this. Okay. Is the name of a vampire in this. Um, that by itself completely lost interest on me and made me realize I am not part of this target demographic. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's because it's not Jackson spelled J-A-C-K-S-O-N. It's J-A-X-O-N. Nice. Somebody yeah. played a lot of fighting games is the only thing that I can think of because Jack's from Mortal Kombat and then Vega from Street Fighter. Like, yeah, somebody There's played fighting that. games. I thought Vega from Street Fighter. The first thing I thought of with Jack's, though, was uh, Sons of Anarchy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too. God, what a sh- what a show. <laughs> what a show that was. I got to I got to got to sit down and just treat myself to, to <laughs> that again. songs yeah man i gotta go through that again and see what see what that was like um next up who remembers the others you know that that film starring nicole kidman directed by uh alejandro amenabar from 2001 i watched it a couple of weeks ago actually does it still hold up i remember thinking it was pretty good when it came out yeah it's still pretty solid and i don't know i've definitely seen other movies from that era that don't hold up nearly as well okay all right. Um, it was definitely a runaway success when it was released, and it's a movie that's still considered a fantastic entry in the haunted house genre. Apparently, it is getting remade. The movie is closing in on its 20th anniversary, so what better way to celebrate a film that's proven itself to be a timeless classic by remaking it with a new cast of Hollywood A-listers? Sentient Entertainment has won the remake rights with the plan to reinvent and modernize the story. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't think uh, anybody knows what that means. I mean, I guess that's okay that, that we don't know what that means, but... I don't know. Whenever I hear reinvent and modernize, I get nervous. Like, yeah, I'm That should you. be understood that you don't, like, you don't have to say that, but I think if that's like your focus, it's probably not going to be great. Well... But who knows? We'll see. I... Uh, it, this just... This doesn't seem like one of those movies, like... When you watched it, did you think, man, this is screaming to be remade? No, not really. Does like, it still I, seem I was, like it's I was a modern film? To hear about this. Like, in my head, I, mean, I feel like it would seem like it, if I watched it today, it would still seem like it was a modern film. I mean, yeah, there, it is. I mean, there, there's some stuff in it that, like, is definitely a product of its time, considering right. when it came out. But I don't mind that. I mean, it's the same thing about movies made in the 80s or the 60s or what have you. Like, There's always parts of a movie that are, you know, a product of its time just because that's kind of what you're limited to. Right. Um, This isn't one of those, like, I was surprised to see that this is getting remade because it was never really on my radar. This is one of the very first films I ever bought. 
like one with my own money and two it was the very first sec sorry second dvd that i ever owned mm-hmm. yeah i don't know why it was this one i think i just got it because it was on sale yeah but uh you know why not <laughs> interesting history about my life that nobody cared or asked for uh <laughs> That's next, what we're here for. Yeah, exactly. Next up, info is surfacing about the next Purge film. It's rumored to be called The Forever Purge. It has been uh, let slip that Jason Blum is prepping for the next film, uh, which is coming directly from The Hollywood Reporter. The current cast includes Eleven Rambin, who uh, starred in the second season of HBO's True Detective, along with Will Patton, Cassidy Freeman, Anna de la Guerra, and uh, Tenoch, I think. Tanakh, maybe. Huerta. Yeah. Um, the film is slated for release on July 10th, 2020. We'll see whether or not that actually ends up happening. Um, July is... It doesn't seem like it right now, but when we're under quarantine until Ju- June 10th, July is literally right around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the franchise, the original franchise creator wrote this one. Oh, really? James, yeah, James DeMonico wrote this script. Um, and I'm just going to venture a guess here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they are going to reinvent and modernize The Purge. And it takes place during a pandemic, and now you actually have to leave your house when The Purge starts instead of trying to get inside. Or, or what if it's like a, um, what the hell's the name of that, like, dictator that wanted to, that wanted to, like, arm everybody so they could kill drug dealers? Oh, uh, in the Philippines. Yes. Yes. Rodrigo Duterte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if it's like that? And it's just like, all right, everybody's getting sick, so now just purge them. Yeah. It could be like that. Are they just going to be, like, half the movie's just going to be burn pits? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Next up, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll see what happens with it. Next up, we got some video game news. Uh, More Resident Evil 8 news is coming to light. Well, at least rumored news. The latest bunch of info comes from uh, the site Biohazard Declassified. Remember, though, that they're the ones that claim Silent Hill is being remade and handed it off to Sony, which turned out to be very wrong. So I'm not sure I trust any of this. Uh, The title for the upcoming game is rumored to be Village, which to me sounds terrible. I just don't like that at all I, before i even opened this article i was trying to come up with words that they could use that would let them get the number eight into it and, and it's hard yeah <laughs> it's hard it's, it's really anything that's got vil in it yeah um so villain village like i i was like villain was the first one that came to mind um and then just various puns for that yeah yeah the game is rumored to be set somewhere in Europe. The game will feature Ethan from Resident Evil 7, 7 coming face-to-face with Chris Redfield. So there's going to be some sort of crossover here. We're finally going to get Ethan introduced to the greater zeitgeist of the Resident Evil series. Um, apparently, one of the preliminary antagonists, uh, pri- primary, sorry, antagonists, will be a witch that wields bugs. Does something Fun. with bugs. Fun. I don't know what that is, but... <laughs> It's sure to be buggy. Um, I imagine it's just the villain from the original Men in Black. Yeah. Hallucinations will also play a big part in the upcoming game, asking players to question everything they're encountering during the course of the game. Resident Evil 8 will release on current and next-gen consoles next year and will feature a first-person perspective, which I'm, I'm glad that they're returning to. I'm glad they're sticking with that for the newer games because I thought, I thought that was very successful with 7. Um, however, the kicker is that the game was originally... 
Resident Evil Revelations 3 at the start of development. The story that goes that RE8 was originally going to be years away, but Capcom didn't want a huge gap between RE7 and RE8. So title got pushed to the side in favor of uh, Revelations 3, which was in development at the time, and it's now turned into Resident Evil 8. So we'll see what happens with that. I don't know, man. I got real burned by the recent remake of Resident Evil 3. Yeah, I have not been... So disappointed in something because Capcom seemed like they were taking a total turn, right? Resident Evil Seven, great game, great game. Mm-hmm. Replayability out the ass. Like I'm, I'm actually probably going to dive into that again here in the next couple of weeks once I'm, I'm done with Final Fantasy Seven. But Resident Evil Two, the remake of that, was great. Was great. Like both the playthroughs were fantastic. It stayed true to the original game. And it was a lot of fun and scary, and it felt like a return to survival horror, as did Resident Evil 7. Resident Evil 3, oh, we're back into, like, the... There are entire sections of that game where you're just, like, unloading ammo into into wave upon wave of zombies as they come at you. Like, I don't know what, what they were thinking with that. They cut entire sections of the original game out. The whole game... Mm. I was finished with the whole game in eight hours, and that was with yeah, me. finished them in a day. And that was with me taking my time, like looking and eating up every possible thing that was going on in the levels, really exploring things thoroughly, trying to make sure I got everything I could. Uh, I will probably play through it one more time just to do like a quick like speed run because I really yeah, want. Yeah, it sounds I'll, like sounds like you're gearing up for a twenty minute speed run. Uh, yeah. Well, apparently, so it's already been beaten in less than two hours. Uh. And I would like to try to get the the rocket launcher with the infinite ammo and stuff, just because it's fun to do that in all the Resident Evil games. So I'll probably do one more speed run of that. But after that, I really can't see like much of a reason for me to want to replay that game. Yeah. And I just didn't feel that way with two. I felt like two was very compelling and and really well done. So there was like, or there's reason for me to go back. And the biggest disappointment with three was the nemesis encounters. Mm-hmm. holy shit dude they're so scripted and so bad like it felt when you can say at least it's been a while since i've played the original resident evil 3 at least six years seven years i replayed it on my ps vita and i only got about halfway because the controls in those original games are a lot worse than i remember them being that happens but when i can honestly say that a ps1 era game felt less scripted and more organic when encountering this boss <laughs> than, than a modern era game. I think maybe you might've done something wrong in yeah. terms of that. Um, I don't know. It felt like they were just kind of building upon Mr. X in resident evil two in the remake of that. And, and there were a few like butthole pucker moments, you know, like the first time I realized, like, remember, I, I think I, I told you guys like, Holy shit, he can get into safe rooms or something. Yep. Uh, but that was like my only what the fuck moment with the entire game, which I had plenty of with Resident Evil 2. And I, I don't know. Play it and find out, I guess, if you're really into the series like I am. But I think maybe wait, though. And yeah, don't I don't think price. it's worth full price. And I don't I don't think the fans of the series are going to enjoy it very much. I still haven't touched the multiplayer that chip with the game, though. So I do plan on jumping on that eventually. Um. 
And now for something completely different, and I do, I do mean completely different. Uh, Ruggiero <laughs> Deodato's Cannibal Holocaust is one of the most infamous movies, infamous movies of all time. Banned in over 80 countries, this movie remains a badge of honor for hardcore horror hounds everywhere. And it's a film to be admonished by those that find it repulsive. Um, that being said, Fantastico Studio, the studio behind the game Rainbow Toilets and Unicorns, which vaguely looks like it's based on those Squatty Potty commercials, <laughs> is uh, it's making what they claim to be the fourth entry in Deodata's Cannibal series of films. In fact, it's actually got Deodata's involvement. Uh, according to the press release, Cannibal is uh, an interactive horror graphic adventure made with Unity and the direction and the script of Rogero Deodato and the original drawings of Solo Cello. Um, it's the, the player will basically take control of different characters to reveal little by little the background that led them on a desperate expedition in the virgin jungles of Borneo. And of course, they get to discover the end of the story destined to shake them, shake from the very foundations every certainty acquired during the course of the game. It's definitely interesting. I don't know whether or not it'll be any good, but it's definitely interesting. <laughs> Dude, I'm here for it, though, man. Like, World of Horror kind of, like, reignited that lo-fi kind of gaming passion. Yeah. We'll see what comes like, out of it. I mean, I, def- we'll, I will definitely be staying on top of this, and we'll see if we can get a review code when when it does yeah, get released. Because like, this, this looks like batshit. Wildly bizarre. Yeah, this does sound batshit. Um, next up, In Memoriam... Uh, this one's this one's a big one for for fans of schlock horror. Uh, Dieter Laser has passed away. The German actor no. most famously known for his role as Doctor Heider, you know that guy that wanted to stitch a whole bunch of people together and do a centipede. Um, you might want to say he set out to make a human centipede, Sam. Just throwing it out there. I don't know that no, guy. His dog, the dog. The dog part did yeah. work, but yeah, uh, bigger and better things. <laughs> that guy, he did. Um, <laughs> Laser appeared in several other films after leaving the stage in 2006, including November and I Am the Other Woman. Or, sorry, November, I Am the Other Woman in 2006 and more. Uh, Dieter was, was, he was 78 years old. Which, he doesn't, he doesn't look that old. In the more recent photos of him, he doesn't look that old. No, he doesn't. He wore his age well. It is a bummer, though, for people that are fans of that film. Uh, I feel like that's happening a lot more, though. Like... My dad's in his seventies. Uh-huh. Like my father in law's in his seventies. I guess both of them. Um and like none of them look like what I would have imagined people in their seventies to look like when I was younger. I, f- I feel like Maybe it's just because we're getting older. Like, yeah, maybe because we're realizing that we're getting closer <laughs> and closer to that every day. Yeah. I'm like, no, that doesn't look that old. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, what? What? Whereas uh, if I was like 10 years old, it's like everybody looks like the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're over 20, you're just way too old. Um, <laughs> Sam, we have anything on the now slang list? I, I feel we like do. I have to ask you because no, just we not do. Sure we we finally have a couple of things. Okay, so uh, let's let's get into those. <laughs> Sam, what do we have? All right, so uh, this one actually snuck past me last week. Um, called The Other Lamb. It was available on April 3rd on VOD from IFC Midnight. It revolves around a young girl named Sela, born into an alternative religion known as the Flock. Uh, also, the cult, you know. 
Um, the members of the flock, all women and female children, live in a rural compound and are led by one man known only as Shepherd. Uh, Sela, a daughter who is on the cusp of teenagehood, is an incredibly devoted follower, but begins to bond with Sarah, an outcast wife who has grown skeptical of Shepherd's teachings. And Sela is given the great honor of participating in the sacred ritual of the birthing of the lambs upon which they depend for survival. Uh, okay. And she's got a shocking and transformative experience beginning to have strange visions that make her question her own reality and everything the shepherd has taught her and her sisters. Uh, interesting cult flick. Um, I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch this one, but it is certainly on my radar. Okay. Uh, next up, we've got In the Trap, which came out on VOD from Dark Sky Films on April 10th. Uh, Philip, a young proofreader, has been living in a self-imposed prison. Convinced that an evil force wants to take possession of his soul, he secludes himself in his childhood apartment, the only place where he thinks he's able to keep himself safe. But a meeting with a mysteriously alluring woman makes him question his beliefs. Have the demons that haunted him all his life been simply a product of his own imagination? Or is this new temptation yet another trap the devil has set for him? And finally, this week, we've got Sea Fever. Uh, April 10th on VOD from Gunpowder and Sky. The crew of a West of Ireland trawler marooned at sea struggle for their lives against a growing parasite in the water supply. Parasite in the water. That's, you know, that's a classic storyline that you just don't hear too much about these days. I feel like it's been like since the since at least the 90s when we got our last good Parasite in the Water Supply movie. Yeah. Well, like... usually they the that trope ends up being part of like some spy movie where like somebody's going to poison the water supply or put something in the water supply. And that's true. the spies have to stop it. It's true. But yeah, it it's been a while since we've seen it in like a horror yeah. uh environment. So that'll be an interesting, be interesting one to check out. Yeah. And and I feel like Gunpowder and Sky has a pretty solid track record. Sure. Probably. I don't know. What else have they done? Uh let me pull it up real quick. It's been a while since I can think of one off the top of my head, but Oh wow, their website's so fancy. It's actually hard to. It's it's almost up. too fancy. Dude, it's so fancy. Uh, let's see, they did villains. Uh, her smell, which is apparently like crushing everything at Tiff. Um, they did Lords of Chaos. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Summer, Summer of eighty four, right. Cam. Uh yeah, so they they've got a pretty solid track record. I, yeah, for sure. I can't. There's nothing oh, the off the top hours? of my head yeah, that yeah, really. Yeah, for sure, for sure. For there's sure. nothing off the top of my head that I can think of that they've done where I was like, "That's garbage." Right. Like, okay. They've they've definitely done a few things that weren't for me. Like Cam was one of them. Um, like I was a little disappointed in it, but it wasn't it wasn't bad. Um, and you know the parts of it that I don't enjoy, I'm just gonna blame on Netflix. <laughs> there you go when in doubt blame it on netflix but they uh they <laughs> recently got uh community on there so you know now you have a reason to stay yeah that's true uh that wraps it up yep well then i think it's time time to ladies and gentlemen welcome to tonight's main event Right, this week's main event, Sam. Yes, we're talking about Freddy vs. Jason. Tell me, tell me, 
the one thing the fans are clamoring to hear your intro oh, my introduction to this movie welcome to this week's main event the dating game We've got the almost all of the almost celebrities trying to find a date. We've got not Brittany Murphy. We've got not Beyonce. And we've got John Ritter's fucking kid. As for our matches duking it out, on one side, we have the hipster man of your dreams with his ironic choices in clothing, competing for their attention against the strong, silent type who knows the fastest way to your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Freddy versus Jason. Ding, ding, ding. I feel like the main event <laughs> drop for this has never been more poignant. Like... <laughs> I do like the not Brittany Murphy call. That's well Dude, done. The entire, the entire time I'm watching this movie, I was like, I know this isn't Brittany Murphy, but I keep thinking it's Brittany Murphy. <laughs> it's like prime era, prime, prime time for Brittany Murphy, too. Like, <laughs> it was really was. Um, Freddy vs. Jason. It came out in 2003. It's directed by Ronnie Yu, but it was almost directed by Rob Zombie. It was almost his first film. And Totally okay with uh, House of a Thousand Corpses being his first one instead yeah 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 and peter jackson was also asked to direct this film i can understand why peter jackson backed out uh but this like would have been fun if he would have just embraced his like former schlock roots and just gone with with over the top core uh it's written by damian shannon and mark swift it stars robert england as freddy krueger ken Keringzer as uh or sorry ker zinger as uh jason Voorhees. The only time he ever played Jason Voorhees. Uh, Monica Kina as Lori Campbell. Jason Ritter as Will Rollins. Kelly Rowland as uh, Kia Watterson. Chris Marquette as Charlie Linderman. Uh, Brendan Fletcher as Mark Davis. Catherine Isabel as Gib. I just, I love whenever Catherine Isabel is on my screen. Uh, Lachlan <laughs> Monroe as Deputy Scott Stubbs. Kyle Labine as Bill Freeberg. Tom, Tim, I'm sorry, Tom Butler as Dr. Campbell, David Cop as Blake, Paula Shaw as Mrs. Pamela Voorhees, uh, and Trey is played by Jesse Hutch. Uh, this one's an interesting one. And one of the reasons that this film is, is going to be a lot of fun for us to cover, and it kind of separates itself from other slasher films, is just the history behind it. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of fan inclusion with the course of the creation of this film. Uh, throughout the early to mid-80s, no two horror figures were more iconic, I think, than Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. But the sequels that each franchise generated became tired. Tired, for lack of a better word. Box office sales began to dwindle, and when Friday the 13th Part 8 came around, it failed to generate sufficient revenue, uh, and producer Sean Cunningham set out to reacquire the rights to Jason Voorhees to make it his own vehicle and begin work on something new. Something that might revitalize the fading slasher icon. And the opportunity came from an unlikely source, the fans. Uh, considering both franchises spawned countless sequels, merch, and even TV shows, the franchises saw fans writing their own fiction in zines, which included face-offs between the two horror villains, uh, along with a plethora of others. Um a fiction turned into everyday discussion for horror fanatics. I know I have personally had those discussions like who would win, you know, would it be Chucky? Would it be Jason? Would it be so-and-so, oh, yeah. you know, like I, I think everybody who's a fan of these or like comic books or like anything like that, they get into these discussions. They, 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 they like to defend their favorite character and come up with reasons as to why they would win a face off against another one. Um, so this fiction turned into everyday discussion for horror fanatics as fans tried to one up 
other fans while defending their favorite horror characters with reasons as to why they would win. New Line, coupled with Cunningham, took note of its rabid fan base and decided that this would just be just the thing necessary to generate sales and get fans excited. They promptly began working on a crossover in 1987. Uh, initially the crossover began as Michael Myers versus Jason Voorhees in a film, but it was quickly scrapped because it was decided that the two killers were too similar. And I have to admit, I'm very glad they didn't go with this angle because they are a little too yeah. similar. <laughs> a little bit. Um, the ideas then sprouted over to Freddy, which then became more of a, a worthy pursuit. The ideas were bounced about for some time as writers tried to figure out reasons as to why the two would cross paths. They fell short. And there it sat in development hell for almost 20 years. <laughs> the story was the film's biggest hurdle. And there was no firm agreement on how to handle the crossover. Concepts were hurled at the walls to see what stuck. Nothing really gathering traction. Um, ideas like making Freddie Jason's counselor at Camp Crystal Lake, uh, having Freddie be Jason's father, the inclusion of Tommy Jarvis, and a bunch of others all surfaced, but thankfully they were all tossed. The rights to the characters made things even more tricky. Paramount wanted to secure the rights to Freddy, and New Line wanted to secure the rights to Jason Voorhees, but neither studio wanted to budge. As a result, negotiations completely collapsed. This led to Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, to be released in 1989, which turned a healthy profit in spite of the vitriolic fan response because of the fact that, uh, you know, Jason wasn't really in the movie at all. Um, and it also led to Wes Craven returning to New Line to create his final Freddy film, A New Nightmare, in 93. The creation of these further put the crossover on hold, but it wasn't until Jason X was finished in 2000 and released in 2002 to utterly abysmal sales that the negotiations began to emerge once again. So I'm noticing a trend here, you know, like the worse the films do individually, the more the studios want to collaborate and try to create this crossover. I think it's really yeah. just because of like generating ticket sales, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I think a lot of it goes back to just who would win. I mean, it's, it's an ultimate fan move. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, a script was presented by Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, who also penned the script for the 2009 reboot of Friday the 13th that combined several different versions of the available 17 total drafts that had been penned over the years and established the two icons in a shared universe where Freddy was behind the events of Jason's resurrection and subsequent massacre. The writers wanted to make sure that the characters sounded as organic and kid-like as possible uh, while exploring some of the campier vibes that the later films uh, in each franchise pursued. Um, when the two presented their vision of the script, Cunningham loved the idea. New Line accepted the premise after working with Cunningham, who had successfully secured the rights to Jason a couple of years prior. There was one remaining issue. The script clocked in at over two and a half hours. Jesus. <laughs> Veteran writer David S. Goyer, responsible for The Dark Knight and Batman Begins, as well as a whole bunch of other films, was brought in to tighten things up, and thus we ended with the final product. So one of the weird endings... Uh, that's in one of these 17 drafts, apparently, uh, involves Pinhead. Uh, so with the movie Which would have been so fucking awesome if they would have pulled right? this off, dude. <laughs> uh, so with the movie starting in hell, the, the writer of this particular script thought to end it also in hell, where uh, chains would have gone through their bodies and Pinhead would have emerged saying, now, gentlemen, what seems to be the problem? Um, but because New Line didn't own the character, they weren't able to include him. And since they had such a hard time kind of getting the rights for all this stuff in the first place, uh, they kind of cut bait and ran. But we'll talk a bit more about crossovers because there was a comic book spawned out of this 
and a potential crossover that never happened on the big screen uh, that we'll talk about towards the end. Yeah, and that comic I, I believe I had read was actually based off of the script that was being touted as the potential potential sequel to this film. Yes. Um, yes. So the film also gave audiences a preview of what would be coming with the 2009 reboot of Friday the 13th as well, recasting Jason from Kane Hodder, who had been uh, used all the way through Jason X uh, to Ken Krisinger, who uh, at a point, well, Cunningham really hotly contested this this change. He didn't think it was was good. He disagreed with it completely. Uh, and there was no real concrete, concrete reason given for this, aside from people citing New Line as wanting to kind of pursue a fresh start for Jason, as well as director Ronnie Yu wanting a new actor to breathe life into Jason. Um, this would be further pursued even uh, even more in the in the 2009 reboot with Derek Mears taking Jason into a much faster and much more fluid direction. Um, I really liked Derek Mears' performance. Well, apparently uh, Kane Hodder thinks he wasn't tall enough. Yeah, there was, that was another thing that I kept coming across was that that Ronnie Yu was saying that he really wanted to emphasize Jason's height to be in contrast with Freddy. Which does makes three sense. inches really make that big of a difference? I guess. I'm, it, well, it, like, does, met, it does in the like, film, because he does look a lot taller than Freddy in the film. Yeah, but they make Tom Cruise look tall in fucking movies. That's true. Like, <laughs> we've, we've met Kane Hodder, and that is a big fucking guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, he I don't is, know. Yeah, dude, he was like my height. Like when Sitting we stood down, up to... he was taller than I am. Yeah, well, I mean, that's not saying much. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just like, the... yes, this, uh, Ken Kersinger is a big fucking guy, but I feel like you probably could have gotten Kane Hodder to look just as big. Yeah, for sure. So with I, camera tricks and stuff. Yeah, like strange decision, but yeah, whatever. It is what it is. I think they just didn't want Kane Hodder. I think I think it really had to do with the fact that New Line really wanted to kind of pursue a fresh start for this. But yeah, if they really wanted it, why did they pursue England? Then again, I guess you can probably replace Jason much easier than you can England. Yeah, as you saw with the remake of, yeah, as you saw with the remake of a nightmare on Elm Street yeah. when that came out, that was a disaster. Although pretty much people say that wasn't, you know, what's his name? Uh, I can never remember that actor's name. I don't remember. It doesn't really. It's not really relevant. But people say that it wasn't his fault. It was just the the script that really kind of took away from it. That's neither here nor there. Uh, when this showdown finally arrived in theaters, it arrived to great fanfare. Sure, people complained about the film's relative neutrality when it came to the final fight, considering it offers no real clear winner, though in my opinion it kind of leans harder toward Jason. Uh, but it remains one of the one of horror's greatest love letters to fans, and I don't think anybody can dispute that. This movie, if you view it as something... That's meant to just be a fun homage to the fan base. Uh, a fun tribute is uh, to the fan base is more the the phrase that I'm looking for there. Um, yeah. I I don't think you can dispute that this movie is is it's great. Like if you're a horror fan and you've liked these two slasher icons like I did growing up, this was I saw this movie three times in theaters. Really? <laughs> yeah, I fucking loved it. I thought it was great. Um, 
It also features one of the most memorable stoner moments in horror film history, which is why we're talking about it during this month's theme, Stoner Scares. In fact, if you Google stoner horror, the film's tongue-in-cheek homage to Absalom, the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland via the lens of good old Freddy Krueger, rarely fails to make it on any list. So, toke up, bros. It's time to get lifted as we sit down and chat about what might just be one of the best crossovers to ever occur in cinema history. Three months after the event of the final Friday... Freddy Krueger, now powerless in hell because the residents of Springwood have forgotten about him, disguises himself as Pamela Voorhees to manipulate Jason Voorhees into killing Springwood teenagers to create fear and regain his strength. We don't normally start off the podcast with a movie clip, but this one's direct from the mouth of Freddy Krueger himself. So it so succinctly sums up the spirit of the whole film that it would be almost a disservice not to start this with it. So here's the clip. Palmer, who played Pamela Voorhees in parts one and two, was initially approached to reprise her role as Jason's mother. She declined, claiming it was too small of a part for her to consider it. Considering Pamela Voorhees only had a couple of lines in this film, I guess that makes sense, but her role in part one wasn't really that significant. I mean, she was there at the very end of the film. 
but like it definitely wasn't her doing most of the killing no. <laughs> throughout the movie. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't actually even think to look this up, um, like what she might have been doing at the time this movie came out. There wasn't a whole lot when I saw it. I think she was involved in something, but regardless, it was an even smaller part in part two. So I have no idea why she declined to make an appearance in this one. Um, but anyway, yeah, Paul, she didn't do jack shit like this. Just work. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just work. <laughs> I don't get a check, baby. Come on, pet. Come on, Betsy. It is what it is, man. Either way, Paula Shaw, who is no stranger to genre film, starring alongside the likes of Linda Bear and David Duchovny and everything from Savage Streets to the X-Files, took the reins perfectly. I think she did a really good job. Yeah, she was great. In, in the in the two paragraphs that she had during the entirety of the film, I think she did a really good job, kind of I had, capturing I had no the rage issues with her at all. Yeah, of Pamela Voorhees. Um, the film's final final girl, Lori Campbell, lives with her widowed father and her friends Kia, who <laughs> played uh, who's played by former Destiny's Child star Kelly Rowland. Whatever, whatever. So like the the other two Destiny's Child members just never did anything really no. after this. No, well, I mean one of them pretty much just like evaporated into dust it seems like yeah it's true the the first one that got kicked out i can never remember her name and my wife just left uh to go our walking encyclopedia of of destiny's child knowledge she absolutely is sharks and (laughs) destiny's child uh well kelly rollins she tried she she tried to cling on to her career through acting and and i guess it just never really stuck um and gib who uh many horror fans will recognize as ginger fitzgerald from ginger snaps or the lead in American Mary are, uh, well, they're sleeping over. They're having some fun over at uh, Lori Campbell's house. So here's a weird fun fact. Uh, Monica Kina, who's playing Lori in this, uh, was born five years before Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Uh, when she finally saw the film, like most children, she was fucking terrified. Um, she admitted it never sleep again, the Elm Street legacy. She was so scared of Freddy Krueger that it affected her uh, physical appearance because she couldn't sleep. Um Kind of like the opposite of your uh, reaction to experiencing Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and it got to the point where her teachers would even call her parents and ask if everything was okay at home. <laughs> thinking she was being abused in some way. Oh, Jesus. Um, and so in order to kind of help get over this, uh, Keena's mom put up a picture of Freddy Krueger next to a picture of Robert England uh, without makeup. Uh, kind of like right next to her bed. And so I don't apparently, know that, that would have helped me. Yeah, to be I don't honest. Know. Apparently, instead of trying to forget about Freddy like they do in this movie, all you need to do is get to understand the real Freddy underneath, and you'll never be scared again. Yes, if you just understand the child murderer slash pedophile <laughs> underneath, then you'll understand the man and never be scared. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is the one thing that kind of irks me. So, like a lot of people who are uh, who dislike the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street claim that they dislike it because of the fact that he's a pedophile in the remake. And my response is always just like, have you never seen the, the films? Because he's a, he's always been a pedophile. He's always been a pedophile. (laughs) I mean, it's in this movie. Yeah. It's it's in, it's it's a very prominent part of this movie. (laughs) He doesn't just kill kids for the fun of it. No. I mean, he, he does. He gets his jollies. There's more, there's more to it. He gets his jollies bone in him first. He's Absolutely. The type, he's the type that alongside us would have found uh, 
a Serbian film to be a black comedy. Without a doubt. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, the fire burned off his chomo mustache, so That's it's true. hard to actually know just by looking at it. It is true. It is true. Uh, as with any slasher sleepover, co-eds arrive and things become a bit more titular. Um, abusive boyfriend and all-around scumbag Trey uh Gibbs' boyfriend specifically, uh, and his friend Blake, whom Kia tries to get Lori to hook up with, much to Lori's disgust, both show up with a prime combination of death for any horror film, beer, drugs, and hormones. Trey and Gibb treat the better, uh, retreat to the bedroom where Trey has shit-tier sex with Gibb, saying things like, babe, don't make me ask you twice, which is actually in the script, whereas, babe, I only pump twice is left out for you to just figure out on your own. <laughs> Then immediately kicks her ass out of bed because he doesn't do cuddling. Don't, uh, don't, I, I told you I don't like to be touched afterwards. I just, yes, whatever. <laughs> I just, I have, I don't know why you wouldn't want to be touched by Catherine Isabel, but that's not there. <laughs> uh, while Gib is showering in what must be the loudest shower ever, uh, Jason massacres Trey, stabbing him multiple times in the back and then proceeding to bend the bed in half with Trey inside of it, creating a Trey sandwich. Uh, I have to appreciate, because it's a, I feel like it's a rarity where in horror movies and sl- or specifically slasher films, you so quickly have identified like the asshole of the movie. Right. And usually he survives a while. This movie takes, wastes no time. In None at all. Him. None and at it, all. It's, it's a great feeling. Scene I would happen. actually say that this movie does an interesting job, at least in terms of, of slashers of trying to analyze abusive relationships. Yeah. Um, well, maybe not analyze as well as portray abusive relationships in a realistic manner. Um, but because of the brutality and lack of evidence relating to the crime, police immediately suspect that Freddie has resurfaced after years of silence, uh, putting them all on high alert and exposing the loose threads of a piss poor town wide cover up. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of things to note so far that went on behind the scenes of this movie. Uh, and everybody loves drama. Uh, so let's look at what took place here between director Ronnie Yu and actress Catherine Isabella. Uh, an on-site or on-set fight between the two of them took place early in filming. Um, as Catherine Isabella always stated that she would never do nude scenes. It's a large part of the contracts she signs when she does horror films. A lot of actors and actresses have stuff like this kind of written into their contracts. Yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah, um, and that's why you have like things like butt doubles and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, this... who, who, who out there just has a nice enough ass to just be like, I actually uh, knew somebody whose sister used to be an ass model. Really? Yeah, uh, um, like for jeans and stuff. So whenever you saw like jean advertisements like below the like from the waist and below, mm-hmm. then it was just like her ass right there. Not a bad gig. Yeah, right? Like, to say, hey, I've got a nice enough bum to put it yeah. on display. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the same thing with hand models, I guess. Um, so she did have that written into her contract for this movie as well. Uh, but during the shoot, you went back on his promise and repeatedly tried to pressure her uh, to get naked for the sex and shower scenes that take place between Gib and Trey. Uh, they did eventually use the body double, which created a rather large rift between her and you for the rest of filming. And Catherine Isabella actually talks about this uh, a few times during interviews uh understandably still pretty uh frustrated with donnie uh, ronnie's choices and uh requests yeah so i came across like a pretty recent interview i think it will not read like 2013 i don't know why the fuck i think that's recent but that's recent in my mind because i'm old uh 
and she uh she vents her frustrations about the whole thing um talking about how it was one of the only times in her entire career that she came across something like this other other films had asked her to do it but once she said no it's in my contract like why are you asking me this yeah it was put to bed but apparently he kept hounding her i don't know i guess he really wanted to see her naked um the teens all retreat to their homes and uh, begin dealing with the trauma that they've witnessed. Blake is out on his porch drinking and vowing to avenge his friend Trey, who, uh, but he, well, he gets a little too drunk and he drifts off into slumberland where he catches a glimpse of Freddy. Um, Blake awakens from his nightmare to find his father sitting beside him. He places his hand on him and just as he does, his father's head rolls off, spewing blood like a fountain all over the porch, a la like Kill Bill. I do yep. love the fact that this movie really embraces that like Kill Bill blood spray. There's so much <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's so over the top. I feel like it's something that we just don't get a lot in modern horror films and it needs to make a, a, a Massive return, please. Well, sooner I think it than also later. just really helps lend itself to just the general fan service of this movie. Well, this movie. So, um, I'm about to stride stride into uh, controversial territory here, but I did my homework on this and rewatched Jason Goes to Hell, and I've always been a defender of Jason Goes to Hell. And as somebody who's a longtime fan of Jason Voorhees' movies, there's not a whole lot of people out there that defend Jason Goes to Hell as adamantly. That is the hill, one of the hills that I will die on (laughs) for horror fandom. Um, Say what you will about Jason Goes to Hell. It has some of the best kills in the entirety of uh, the Jason Voorhees franchise. You've got... uh, you even have homages to some of the kills that take place in Jason Goes to Hell in Jason X. Uh, they're just more campy in Jason yeah. X, whereas they're a lot more serious and more uh, violent, especially if you watch the uh, the unrated version, which is on Amazon, by the way. Um, Wait, are you trying to say that Jason in space isn't serious? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh and this movie, I think, does a really good job of getting some really campy, over-the-top gore thrown in the film that makes the kills creative. And I think that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy this movie so much is because of the fact that it's... And not just because of the fact that it's a, a crossover or fan service and we just don't usually see stuff like this in horror because horror as a genre tends to take itself too seriously. Um, it's just the, the kills are great. And to start off with folding somebody in a bed... <laughs> and then and then just like immediately the next kill is somebody's head falls off and it's just blood spraying everywhere it is a wonderful start it it hook it, for a slasher film this is a hook this this it immediately you, grabs my attention it lets you know exactly what to expect exactly hour and 15 minutes at this point exactly uh jason proceeds to dismember blake as well and the police end up calling it a murder suicide the following day hoping to contain Freddy, who they also believe was responsible for this at this point in time. 
Yeah. Lori's ex-husband, Will Rollins, whom Lori believes uh, has abandoned her. Sorry, sorry, ex-boyfriend, not ex-husband. Whom Lori believes has abandoned her without notice and whom she's also still very deeply in love with. And his friend, Mark Davis, are patients at the Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital. They take an experimental drug called Hypnosil to suppress their dreams because of their previous contact with Freddie. Will also believes that Lori's father killed her mother and feels the need to protect her from him as a result. In addition, they're made to believe that they're crazy. They never encountered Freddie and that the incidents that they've witnessed as children and experienced were in their mind. In short, they lose they they are the loose ends of the previously mentioned town-wide conspiracy. As far as conspiracies go, I love this one. <laughs> what about this kind of dro- draws you to it? Because I think that there's like, because we we talked about conspiracies ad nauseum on this, um, and one of my like continual issues is with a lot of conspiracies. There's too many people involved to actually keep it going. Right. I think there's just the right number of people involved in this to actually have it happen. So you have what the sheriff, the the doctor, I guess a, a few members of the police force, and then you've got the parents that are old enough to remember. Yeah. And that's just just the right amount for you. Just, just I think, the sprinkling. I, no, like I think I think that is like the upper limit of how to get a conspiracy like to actually work without it falling apart. Because this isn't like a particularly big town. Although, depending, I mean, there there are plenty of people that show up to the rave later on. Right. Um, so I mean, there there are a good number of people in this town. But I'm on the I'm under the impression though that rave is like several towns. Yeah. Uh, because it seems to be like in a rural rural area. There oh, seems to be like a ton of giveaway. Yeah, and like a ton <laughs> of ton of people come. I I just feel like that might be like a tri county thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I think if you've got you know the ten or so people involved in running this conspiracy, I think that is like the upper limit of how to get something like this to work. Okay, and I th- I think it's awesome. That's fair. Uh, a news report prompts the duo of crazies to escape and return to Springwood to tell Lori and Freddie, uh, or sorry, about Freddie to uh, save her from what's coming. Mark creates a diversion by acting like a monkey and stealing a key card from one of the orderlies at the hospital, allowing them to venture into a torrential downpour that covers their escape. That night, Lori and the others attend a rave in a cornfield where they encounter a few of their high school buddies, Lindemann, the nerd from earlier, and Freeberg, who's really just a caricature of Jay from the iconic stoner duo, duo uh, Jay and Silent Bob, coined by uh, Kevin Smith, just in case you didn't know. I feel like I had to mention that in case, I guess, some of our horror fans aren't Kevin Smith fans. I feel like the two aren't mutually exclusive, but what do I know? Anyways, including several of the jocks and a couple of bullies. Um, Lori and her friends, uh, well, they're, that's, so it's including Gib at this point, who has had no sleep since the previous night, along with Lori, who's also had no sleep since the previous night, where their friends were mercilessly slaughtered at Lori's house. Um, Gib is also reeling from the loss of her shitty ex-boyfriend, and, uh, well, her shitty, I guess, boy, do you call it an ex-boyfriend if he's dead? Her shitty just boyfriend, I guess, right? Like, you wouldn't call it an ex at that point, right? Yeah, I guess not. I don't know. No, I wouldn't. Because that's like people who aren't in abusive relationships and their spouse dies. They're not my ex-husband. They're my dead husband. It's my dead boyfriend. 
Yeah. My dead abusive boyfriend. Her shitty dead abusive boyfriend. Uh, and proceeds to get totally trashed, resulting in her sleepwalking and becoming susceptible to Freddy's games. Freddy toys with Gib, acting like her abusive ex. <laughs> What's he say? Like, like get over. It's like his head, right? Or something. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. that's just like floating around. And he's just like, get, follow me, babe. Like, why, why are you shit faced? Like, just just totally fucking toying with her uh, and yeah. acting like it. And she just immediately doesn't even question the fact that he died and why she's drinking in the first place and why she feels so sad. She just immediately falls back into the routine. And I think that right there is a really good kind of look at why people stay in abusive relationships. Yeah. Um, at least through the lens of a slasher film. So it's not like really in depth or anything or like anything really smart being said about it. It's just here it is, I guess. Um, so she, he toys with her, tries to kill her inside the nightmare. But before Freddie can finish the job, Jason kills her and massacres the entire cornfield rave in the real world. Uh, this makes Freddie realize that Jason's rampage will deny him victims. Uh, real quick, interesting thing to kind of include about this cornfield rave, the, the fire stunt. So at one point, fi- uh, Freddie gets lit on fire. This was a really He's complicated stunt. Doused in uh what like everclear, right? right? Yeah. And so this was a really complicated stunt. One that actually won them several uh well not won them, but had them nominated for several awards, including best fire effect. Um for for the stunt people, which I didn't even know stunt people awards were a thing. You yeah. think those would be like more broadcasted and like brought to light? Because I would love Nobody to watch. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nah, it, dude, it's it, not it, a major... I'm totally into that, dude. Like, give me the stunt but people. I'm, awards. I'm saying it's the people that actually watch things like the Golden Globes and the Oscars. Like, they don't care about that. I guess that's true. I guess they care true. about the celebrities, and the stunt people, unfortunately, are not considered celebrities. Well, I mean, we kind of talked about this with Death Proof, right? Like, yeah. <sighs> I think we need, I think it's time. I think it's time to start giving stunt people more credit. Absolutely. We I mean, this guy have comes these out movies like, without this, him, right? Like, this, yeah, I mean, this guy, this guy turns Jason into the fucking, like, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming out of the fucking cornfield just <laughs> lit on fire with a giant flaming sword. Setting everything in its, in his path in the cornfield on fire as he's, wa- he's never mind that this is like green corn that would be pretty resistant to flames. <laughs> he's still just burning as he takes each and every step. Like, I, there are moments when I had to suspend my disbelief in this film. This is one of them. <laughs> I latch on to oh, the weirdest your, shit. Your farmer mentality is saying that this would not actually yeah. happen. This is just me latching onto the weirdest shit, dude. Like, cause I know, I know for a fact that there have been continuity errors with a whole bunch of scenes leading up to this moment. And this scene in and of itself is a continuity, continuity error. But the entire time my brain is just screaming that corn wouldn't catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> He would have to stand there and like put his flaming torso up to the corn for a while for it to catch on flames. But you know what? It's neither here nor there. Anyways, Lindemann and uh, Freeberg escape the rave with Will, to- uh, Lori, and Kia. I don't know why I keep wanting to call Lori Tori. Every single time that I was writing this script, I just wanted to call her Tori the entire fucking time. <laughs> Anyways, Lori and Will go to Mark's house and Freddie, <laughs> they find Freddie killing him. Deputy Stubbs approaches Lori and her friends who realize Freddy's plan, learning about the hypnosil they try to steal away from Weston Hills, during which uh, Freddy possesses Freeberg, 
who, however, manages to uh, dispose of the medicine because Freddy's controlling him. And uh, so this is a little message to all the stoners out there. Hmm. If you are with a group of friends Hmm. and you're on a mission, yes, something has to get done for a very particular reason. And if it doesn't happen, bad things are going to happen. Just wait like 20 more minutes before lighting up. No, no, no. As somebody who used to smoke a lot of weed, (laughs) I can tell you that waiting was the mistake. (laughs) He needed to smoke before he entered. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, like smoke when you're coming up with the plan, not in the middle of executing the plan. Yes. All right. I'll agree with you there. I'll agree with you there. So this scene is the whole reason that we're talking about this movie during this month, right? Now, somebody who's never seen this film before, right? Because you didn't see it. You didn't see it before this, right? Or am I mistaken? I've seen this one before. Oh, you have seen this one before. Okay. Yeah. When was the last time you watched it? It's... Oh God, it's been a while. It's been a long time. Okay, so was it kind of like like you were entering it w- with fresh eyes, watching it yeah, again and absolutely. witnessing the scene? What did you think of the scene? What do you, how do you think it holds up now? Because I remember like thinking this was when I saw it in theaters, high out of my mind. Uh, I re- legitimately was just like this. It doesn't. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> <laughs> This is a wild inclusion to have in a movie like this. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) This scene is so incredibly out of place that it is one of the scenes that I actually remember the most. Because out of any slasher movie, the last thing that I'd expect to see show up in the middle of it is Absalom. Yes. (laughs) Um, It's so fucking bizarre. Um, And it also just like really, really supports the... uh, the era of special effects that we had. Uh, Cause a lot of the, a lot of me watching this movie was, you know, also on discord with you. And I was just like cracking jokes about the dialogue and shit or this, uh, the various dialogue CGI, uh, like when Kia gets her nose ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is actually probably where I feel like most of their CGI budget got spent. Oh, for sure. For sure. I guarantee you a good Porsche, at, at least $600,000 of the total budget was spent on that one scene. Like, 100%. And this had, if I, if I remember correctly, this had the largest budget out of any of these movies in this franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like 25 they threw, they threw money million, at this. something like that. Yeah, they threw money um, at this with the expectation that it was going to recuperate everything just because it was a crossover. Right. Um, no, I I love this scene. It's so it's so absurd that it would not work in any other kind of slasher movie that wasn't just a crossover. Like if if this movie was anything other than just like a tip of the hat to all the fans of these franchises, this scene wouldn't work. Well, I think I think like uh, this scene right here is much more representative of like Jason X or uh, anything that came after Dream Warriors in the Freddy mm-hmm. series of films. Like it's much more campy. It's much more fun. You know, it reminds me of the time that like Freddy turned into a TV <laughs> and then like <laughs> smashed somebody's head through it. Like it, it's 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 much more uh, the sense of humor that I think everybody really likes. It's the reason 
that you can kind of root for Freddy Krueger, right? Like, in spite of the fact that he's he's this terrible pedophile that kills kids and fucking, like, had a terrible history and, and uh, did all these just shitty things to this town and... and Eventually got set on fire. Yes, yes. And rightfully so. Yeah. But it's the reason that you can kind of, like, go back and keep watching his films. And I think it's one of the reasons that uh, the remake got shat on so heavily is because it lost the sense of humor. Uh, whereas, you know, this movie really embraces that sense of humor in certain parts and, and knows when to cut it out and just embrace the gore, the over-the-top gore in other parts. But this is one of the moments where they're just like, you know what, we can really have some fun with this scene. This guy's smoking weed. Let's throw Alice in Wonderland in there, and let's go over the top with it, and we'll even have Freddy smoke some weed with this guy, and it'll seem like he's having fun at first. And then, on top of that, they don't just, like, kill the stoner. They make the stoner an integral part of how Jason manages to get put into place for the rest of the film, right? So mm-hmm. he's not just this guy that just, like, smokes a bunch of weed with Freddy and then turns around and dies. He's this guy that smokes a bunch of weed with Freddy, gets possessed by Freddy, manages to put Jason down into a deep sleep, and then gets cut in half. <laughs> yeah. So they really did a great job of capturing just, like, this this uh, over-the-top stoner moment in horror cinema and then turning around and pushing the plot forward with it as a result. Um, mm-hmm. So Jason's tranquilized by the pre- uh, the uh, possessed Freeberg and uh, kills him by cutting him in half before he falls asleep. The teens re- devise a plan to pull Freddy from the dream world into reality and force him to fight Jason, bringing in an unconscious Jason and then now into the now abandoned uh, Camp Crystal Lake. So coincidentally the two town towns happen to be like a matter of hours driving distance (laughs) (laughs) between one another. Um, I'm not sure how that lines up. I don't even really know if it was hours. I'm thinking like they're 30 miles apart. Well, I was trying to, I was really trying to figure out that was going to be one of my goals for, for this week's podcast was to go through all of the films and try to see whether or not I could figure out how realistic this was that these two towns were like just happened to be within driving distance from each other. Uh, I have a child and that's not possible <laughs> for me to do these days, but I do, I do f- fully intend on doing that somewhere down the road and kind of seeing how the two play into each other because th- there, there have to be giveaways in terms of location. It's like watching all like 20 something seasons of the Simpsons and people who have, I think I, well, so somebody came out with like a um, an article. God, it must have been two or three years ago at this point about how they pinpointed where Springfield was because of like the 18th season of The Simpsons. Yeah, uh, it took like 18 seasons of them giving enough details as to like the geological position of where it was in relation to other places within the United States that actually exist that made this one person realize where Springfield was actually supposed to be. I think it was supposed to be Ohio. Uh, I'm going to have to dig that article up. I I can't remember where it was that I read it. It might not have been an article. It might've just been a post on Reddit or 4chan or something. That sounds more like a Reddit thing. Um, but I, I was really trying to do that with this movie, and I just didn't end up having the time to do it. Because every time I do watch this movie, this is another moment where I have to suspend my disbelief and be like, really, they're within, like, you know, maybe a couple hours driving distance, like, of each other. But, 
It is what it is. Uh, the teens devise a plan to pull Freddy from the dream world into reality and force him to fight Jason, bringing the unconscious Jason uh, to the now abandoned Crystal Lake. Freddy fights Jason in the dream world. His dream powers show him that Jason is afraid of water because of his death by drowning. He uses water to make Jason powerless, but Lori He's goes to sleep. He's just a little baby. Yeah. But Lori, Lori goes to sleep and tries to save Jason. Freddy attacks her and reveals herself to be... Uh, or sorry, Freddie reveals himself as her mother's killer. So this is the another thing, moment. The things that Freddie says to Jason, like child Jason, about him being like ugly and hideous and all of that. Those are the things that go on in my head whenever somebody posts a picture of like an actual newborn. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, look at this ugly little mutant. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to love you. <laughs> so this is my biggest point of contention throughout this entire film right here is the fact that Jason is afraid of water. Uh, that makes no sense <laughs> at all. <laughs> but fire and water are opposites, Palmer. Uh, yes, I understand that. And, I, and it makes sense with, with Freddie because, you know, he was burned to death, but that doesn't, it, that doesn't seem to be a thing that he's legitimately afraid of throughout the entirety of any of his films, but it makes I'm I'm more willing to give in to the that fact than I am to Jason mm-hmm. being afraid of water because of the fact that like in Jason takes Manhattan he literally walks the distance of the fucking ocean to get to get to fucking Manhattan uh in the second or in the end of the first film he jumps out of the lake where he's just been resting and chilling he's just, he's just yeah. having a good old Jason time uh you know, he gets trapped underwater multiple times and he's chained underwater. That's where he's held, but he's never meant to be afraid of it. Like, I think though I think he'd be afraid of trying to breathe water. I uh, maybe if he, hold, if he holds his breath, it's fine. Water ain't gonna hurt him. It it just seems like that that one point of the movie seems like such a stretch to me that yeah. That this is the one moment, like, in spite of everything else with me trying to have to suspend my disbelief with the flaming corn <laughs> and other shit that well, we've also, witnessed so far in this film. This is the one moment where, as a fan of both franchises, I ha- I do actually eye roll at this film during this one kind of, whenever they discuss that this, that Jason should be afraid of water and Freddy should be afraid of fire. I find myself well, eye rolling every single time. It also fucks up with continuity because after Lori leaves the the rave after everybody, I think it's after that, and she goes home and they run into her dad. Right. And it's pouring down rain. Yeah. For like half this fucking movie. Yeah. Like, it, it kind of screws all that up. Yeah. Unless Jason's just staying inside or carries an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just imagine Jason just carrying an umbrella from place to place? <laughs> I just imagine that his umbrella, it's like the penguin umbrella gun except his is like a machete umbrella yeah no i just imagine him as a as a every time i watch this movie i'm just like oh he's, he's suddenly the wicked witch of the west and he'll just like start melting <laughs> if he gets water on him but uh you know it is what it is jason awakens a camp crystal lake and chases the teens into a cabin lindeman is uh killed and the cabin catches fire Lori is awakened as uh and well she pulls freddie out at this point into the real world um where he is confronted by Jason. And at first, at first, for a very split second, Freddy is kind of scared. 
You know, he's like, oh, shit, this isn't the dream world anymore. Because at this point, they're fighting because uh, he was fighting Jason in the dream world while Jason was unconscious yeah. this entire time and winning by a large margin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then finally he gets pulled into the real world. And this is Jason's territory now. This is where Jason puts up his best fight. And it's interesting because Freddie, like I said, he's scared at first. He has this, oh, what the fuck moment when he realizes that he's been pulled into the real world and that he's fighting Jason on Jason's terms now. But that very quickly changes. Uh, Freddie stops being so afraid and just starts embracing the strength that he also happens to have in the real world. Like he seems to have this superhuman strength in the real world as well. He also really, he's really good at karate. Yes. He's very mobile for somebody as old as Robert England was when he played. Right. That's the only thing I was thinking during this entire series. Like, damn, that stunt double that they got for Robert England really can move in ways that Robert England can't. He's very capable. He's very capable. Uh, So uh, as Jason and Freddy fight, the remaining teens manage to escape in the cabin and Kia distracts Freddy until Jason kills her. So this whole scene was apparently improvised and never actually part of the script. Yes. Uh, Palmer, I sent you a clip of the conversation Kia has with Freddy here. All right, let me play it real quick. Freddy! How sweet. Dark. Originally, Kia was actually supposed to be talking to Jason here and turning her back on him only for Freddy to kill her after saying wrong one bitch. Uh, instead, uh, Miss Roland decided to improvise uh, and really just go after Freddy's manhood here. Uh, she calls him a <laughs> f- it. She you says can- he's wearing a Christmas sweater. He's got butter knives on his hand that are uh, trying to compensate for something small in between his legs. Whereas the other guy, he's just got this really big one. Yeah. Uh, and then he just shows up and hacks her into a fucking tree. Yep. Yep. So uh, the whole use of the word it is a pretty big point of contention, especially from modern viewers. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's kind of like hastily pointed out that this was totally ad-libbed, which leads me to wonder about, you know, why Kelly or why Miss Rowland doesn't have a <laughs> hasn't had that much of a career? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it is it is a a point that you have to consider. <laughs> yeah. On, uh, I mean it's it's the one part that like jumps out because earlier she gets uh, ragged on real hard about like hating herself, and that's why she like treats everybody like shit. Yeah, because uh, like Will really lays into her. Um, early 
And this part kind of makes me buy that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does actually, right? Like, I'm just like, okay, so this is this is how you just treat everybody. It's, yeah. it's, it's not just the people you know. Like, you, you treat everybody this like, way. Lindemann, because, like, Lindemann, like, lays into her during the, the cornfield scene, right? Like, yeah. Like, call, says that, oh, she's just, like, a fragile, like, egotistical bitch. Yeah. And that's the reason that, like, you know, she she acts like this. And then all of a sudden she starts pulling out this stuff and just really knows exactly how to attack somebody. Like, she yeah. perfectly reads Freddy, who she has very, like, limited experience with, very limited knowledge of. And she's like... All, her only interaction with Freddy up to this point was when she fell asleep at the nurse's room, right? Yeah, but she knows immediately to latch... <laughs> attack this guy's manhood. That yeah. will 100% be the way to kind of get him to fuck off. Yeah, let's really insult this pedophile killer. Yes. Uh, and it's not even Freddy that ends up dispatching her. It's it's Jason that does it for her. That's because she's standing in his way. Yeah, that's true. It's Move, true. bitch. Get out the way. <laughs> Cue ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the dock. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, because uh, you think about nowadays, taboo behind the use of the word f***. Like, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's definitely not something you would see in modern filmmaking. Right. But it's something that you see as recent as, like, films in, like, 2015. Like, yeah. used in just, like, casual context. And then it just seems to completely disappear after that. So somewhere, it's like, in filmmaking, you can see, I guess, like, the social mentality behind that word just take a sudden shift, and then it just disappears off the face of the earth. Yeah, Which is, and in the, isn't a bad thing. I'm not criticizing that. No, and it's it's interesting because in the rare instances that it does still pop up in film, it is used specifically to induce a specific reaction. Yeah, and it's used by the worst of the worst characters within that film. Yeah, whereas like this, you know, 15 years ago, if we had watched it, or when we watched this 15 years ago, you know, it, it's just something that probably most of us were either saying or knew people that were saying, and it just kind of rolls off are yeah, bad. It's just Whereas, like going back and rewatching it now, like this scene makes me cringe a little bit. Yeah, it does. It does for me too. But you get on Call of Duty and suddenly uh, 50, like, 12 year olds are yelling at it. Yelling I hear at so you. Many people yelling that shit all the time. Yeah. Just like, Come on. Yeah. Man. <laughs> um, on the dock, the two killers deal devastating blows to one another with Jason tearing Freddy's clawed arm off after Freddy cuts off Jason's fingers and stabs his eyes. Lori and Will pour gasoline on the dock and set it afire, thus making propane tanks explode and throwing Freddy and Jason into the lake. Freddy climbs out and tries to kill Lori and Will. Uh, at first it kind of comes out and it's like, oh, he's the one that survived, right? He's getting ready to deal the final blow to these two. And then Jason in typical Jason fashion manages to jump out of the water. And, uh, you know, this allows Lori to decapitate Freddy as Jason falls <laughs> lifeless into the lake. Lori and Will, they leave Camp Crystal Lake. A victorious Jason emerges from the water the next day, holding his machete and Freddy's severed head. But when Jason walks out of the water, Freddy suddenly winks, and his ominous laughter is heard in the background. Signaling, this is my world, bitch. Signaling that maybe things aren't quite as over as you think. Yeah, so why was there never a follow-up to this? Because that ending is like primo... Yeah, there's gonna coming be a soon, part there's two. gonna be a sequel. <laughs> um like coming soon, Freddy and Jason two, or uh better yet, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. 
so this is what we were kind of talking about at the beginning of this. Um, according to Sci-Fi, uh, there there was a problem with New Line Cinema's reluctance to have Ash kill off Freddy. Uh, we see this in the comics. It was a six six comic or six issue series that was released uh, from Dynamite and Wildstorm. Um, but Robert England explained at the Emerald City Comic Con saying New Line Cinema was against it because I had just had my ass kicked by Jason and they were afraid because I was the most successful of the three franchises. Uh, they were afraid we can't have Freddy killed twice in a row. And I was like, wait a minute, guys, you revived me. You resurrected me with dog piss. It's real easy to bring Freddy back. Come on. That's just not hard to do. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so Dynamite Wildstorm, as I mentioned, uh, put ink to panel and brought this face off fans have been wanting uh, to life. From 2007 to 2008, the story played out in a six issue comic series, um, beginning with issue number one titled The Nightmare Warriors. Dating, uh, and when reviewed by IGN, they stated, as long as you expect nothing more than it can't be wrong, there is certainly fun to be had. Uh, Sam Raimi was even originally on board pitching some plans for the movie based on these comics. Um, in the film, Ash would have defeated Freddy and Jason, effectively preventing each film series from getting more questionable at the worst uh potentially unneeded at best sequels. Um, <laughs> a few years ago, Adam Marcus, who is the director for Jason goes to hell said he considered Jason to be a deadite, which would have been an interesting plot point to see if Freddy versus oh, Jason. Versus yeah, Ash dude, ever and happened. I've heard, I've heard this, uh, this idea pitched. I, I actually had a conversation with somebody about this exact thing. When I was defending Jason goes to hell, when we were last, <laughs> At uh, no, it was the year before last. Uh, at scares the care, <laughs> at a late night party that I stormed into after after everything finished up, I got into an argument. I didn't hear about these. Not even really like an argument, just like a discussion about the fact that Jason could very well be a deadite. Uh, yeah, and and how that could cross over, especially considering the fact that the Nep Necronomicon uh and the dagger from the Evil Dead movies. Both make an appearance in Jason Goes to Hell. That lore is already there. That lore is already yeah. established. Just just dive off the deep end with it and have <laughs> just some go fun. For it. <laughs> like, I don't understand what the issue is. This, once again, goes back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast, where horror franchises take themselves a little bit too seriously. Yeah, well, one of the other reasons why this actually, why they never did dive off the deep end here, was a year after Freddy vs. Jason came out a U.S. version of a movie we all know called The Grudge happened under Sam Raimi's Ghost House Productions banner, making a ton of money, leading Raimi to change his mind about where to focus his efforts. Uh, he then canceled his at-the-point verbal agreement with New Line Cinema. So we were already that close that there was a verbal agreement between them. Uh, and he took his Spider-Man money and his Grudge money and his ball and decided to fuck off and go remake The Evil Dead, which I'm actually totally yeah, okay I am, with. I am okay with um, the way that ended up, too. He didn't tell New Line Cinema that he wasn't that he was backing out of this though. He just kind of took all of his shit and decided to work on something else, and they got left holding the bag. Um, and with this remake replacing Ash, leaving him out of the limelight for so long prior to his TV show, it did finally kill off any potential for the comic to make it to the screen. You'd think though that the TV show would have kind of rekindled that. I think it would have had. Had Bruce Campbell not said, no, I won't reprise this role. 
Yeah. Well, not even that. I'm not going to reprise this role. Just know I'm retiring. Yeah. He's in his lavender fields with his weed. Hey, perfect. Yeah. Perfect for Stoner Scares Month. <laughs> but also, I th- there, there's also all the legal issues tied to this shit. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, again, though, like, I, I really think, like, that whole thing of them going to hell and bumping into, into, uh, uh, what's his name? Pinhead. Yeah. That would have been so fucking perfect. Like, why not just throw that in for shits and giggles, dude? Like, yeah. What's the issue? I don't understand. But it is what it is. Anyways, holy shit, we did it. We managed to talk about the ins and outs of Freddy versus Jason without digressing into how it's just a slasher film. Um, like I said at the beginning of this, it does help that there's a lot of history with this one. And the fan service contributes a lot as well. So, Sam, what are we rating this yes. out of? Ooh. There's so many options for what we can rate this out of. The elements. <laughs> the, the last airbenders. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what are your... What are your folded up for? assholes. Folded up... A- okay, how many folded up assholes are we giving this? Uh, I'm going to give this a 3.75 folded up assholes. It, it, uh, well, that... So we're at a 3.75 across the board. <laughs> <laughs> It's, what do we think Alex would have given this? Uh, I feel like she's a bigger fan of neither of these franchises. Uh, that's right. Yeah, she <laughs> she prefers a Halloween franchise. Yeah, I mean, as do I. But like, this movie's just fun. Like, yeah, it's, it's, I agree. it's not supposed to be anything other than just fun, which is why you have that like completely absurd kill count in the cornfield. I tried to keep track of the kills in this movie oh, and yeah. then everybody just, in the cornfield dies. Jumps and I don't know how end. many people that is. Yeah. It just jumps off the deep end. Yeah. I feel like she probably would have given it much lower. Honestly, I would guess like a two, seven, five or maybe a three. Yeah. That sounds about right. So what do we think? Just three from her. Yeah. Let's give her a three. So what's that make it like a three, five. No, uh, three point like three five. Something oh like shit! That. I just opened the wrong thing. So we both said three seven five, right? Yes, yes. And a three for Alex, and that gives us a three point five. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, three point five it is, I guess. I was right the first time when I said three five. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm proud of you. I should have trusted my gut on the math there. <laughs> so it's not ending in the six 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 six. But uh, you know, not everything can be gold. Yeah. Some things are just platinum. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So it's time for the housekeeping, and we light it up, 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 light it up, 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 light it up, up, up. Well, I'm fire. That was another blazing hot episode, Sam. <laughs> Next week, we're covering another 420-centric film, this time following, falling on or at least around 420. We're, clearing yep. th- we're changing things up a little bit from our initial list and covering Class of Newcomb High instead. Um, we can't really ignore a film about people buying drugs that are contaminated. Yeah. That just that seems like a perfect 420 horror film. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff at Terror and Podnito. You can follow us individually too. I'm Palmer at Sturmsworth. I'm posting project 
progress pictures of my garden still. There's still a lot of fun tips and tricks on there that you can discover if you are an amateur gardener like myself. Sam. I'm Sam at Sam Hebes. Uh, I will probably actually start posting pictures of my attempts to grow things that may or may not kill me. Um, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. We'll see. We'll see. And Alex is at A Looters. Uh, she's not really doing a whole lot of anything on social media, but it's totally understandable why she's not right now. So, yeah. uh, anyways, uh, people who have entered the holding contest, we will reach out to you later today. As always, thanks for tuning in. Same. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another quarantined episode. Yeah, featuring some kids who buy some drugs that just might be bad. See you then. As always, keep it creepy. Take care, everybody. Bye, friends.